Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. I'll get to the text uh, a bit later. And I hope you'll bear with me tonight because I've got a lot to say before I actually get down to the message and uh, don't, don't be frightened or anything as time goes by and think that, uh, wow, this is, this is going to be an all-nighter because it's not, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to the message when we do. But there's some things I'd like to say. Uh, I can't help but think, and, and I often do, uh, back to that day uh, when I trusted Christ as my Savior. I mentioned it this morning. I, I think about it all of the time. It was the greatest experience of my life, and uh, it settled all of my greatest fears. I mean, that it just took care of them. But at the same time, it created a new fear, and that fear was the fear of failure. Because I wanted to please Christ more than anything. And I was uh, scared to death that I might revert back to my old ways. It didn't help anything whenever my mother, bless her heart, said of my conversion, (laughs) well, it won't last. (laughs) That's really encouraging for a new Christian. But she knew me and and I think maybe she had a right to say that. She didn't, she, did, she didn't know whether I'd got in off of a drunk or what, and she knew me that uh, one thing today and something else tomorrow. But, uh, but, but I had this fear in my heart uh, that maybe she was right. I, I wanted to serve God, but I was afraid I was going to fail. And let me tell you, that... That lasted even up to when I started preaching. I was scared to death when I was preaching because I was a whole lot more emotional back then than I am today. And I was scared to death I was going to cuss a blue streak. I mean, get to preaching again. I, I'm, uh, this is real stuff, I'm telling you. I was afraid that I was going to inject some curse words into the conversation. And thank God I, I, I don't think that ever happened. If it did, I don't remember it. So... Uh, but when I discovered Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, I'm telling you, that gave me hope. That was my lifeline. I depended upon that continually. And as I've mentioned before, I, I can remember when I was working for the civil engineering firm and I'd get up and leave my desk and go to the restroom just just to pray. And I'd quote that verse over and over again because all of the fellows have been accustomed, you know, to us going out for drinks when we got off work or maybe even before we got off work. And so um, I, that that's the reason my first favorite Christian song was Victory in Jesus. That was the first Christian song I really fell in love with. And... Uh, at that time, at that time, I didn't know anything about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I knew I was a sinner. I knew Jesus was the Son of God. He died on the cross to save me. I believed that He would. I believed that He did. All of that was settled. But that's that's all I knew at that time. And uh, nearly forty-five years ago, after I was pastoring uh, in the Cincinnati area. Uh, one of the pastors there uh, called a, a meeting of all of the independent Baptist preachers. And by the way, Cincinnati probably has more independent Baptist churches than any other city other than maybe Dallas. 
uh, that's just all over the place. But he wanted to know, uh, he wanted to know if I would come and speak to all of those preachers. And he said, I want you to speak to them on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And two things came to my mind. Number one, this man was probably in the top five most intelligent men I've ever met in my life. And so I thought, why don't you do that? Second, the second thought I had was, I figured that none of these pastors really needed to hear about the subject, and certainly if they did, not from me. And to this day, I have no idea why it was he asked me to speak to all of those preachers on the subject of the Holy Spirit. I'm glad he did. And it was, a, you might say, a real eye-opener to me because when you know you're going to be preaching to more than 50 independent Baptist preachers on a designated subject like that, you know you want to be on point and not drop the ball at half court so you know you've got to know what you're talking about. And I don't know that I ever studied any more for a sermon in my life than I did for that message. Now, I say all of that because I am totally convinced that the Holy Spirit is the most understood person of the Trinity. And I'm not the only one that has come to that conclusion. I could spend the next 10 or 15 minutes giving you one quote after another of famous preachers that have basically said the same thing and have been saying it for a hundred years. A.M. Stibb said that the Holy Spirit is the displaced person of the Godhead. Another said, in almost every age, too little attention has been paid to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But then he made this statement. He said that it has resulted in a distortion of Christian doctrine and an impoverishment of Christian life and work. And boy, I'm, that, that is so true. An impoverishment of Christian life and work is the result of us not depending upon the Holy Spirit. Maybe my favorite quote was by A.W. Tozer. And I'm going to read that to you. He said, in most Christian churches, the Spirit is entirely overlooked. Whether he is present or absent makes no real difference to anyone Brief reference is made to him in the doxology and the benediction. Further than that, he might as well not exist. So completely do we ignore him that it's only by courtesy that we can even be called Trinitarians. The idea of the Spirit helped by the average church member is so vague as to be nearly non-existent. Let's think about that for a little while. And as you do, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what Christians need the most. Now, the most important thing that could happen to anyone, naturally, is that they be saved. Nothing's more important than that. But I'm talking about someone that is already a Christian. What is the most important thing that could happen to someone like that? Well, the answer is given here. I believe in Ephesians 5.18 where he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. That is what we as Christians need more than anything else because that's the only way that we can live as we should. 
the present effectiveness of this church and every church, the future existence of a church depends on this very thing because if the members of the church are not controlled, if they're not empowered by the Holy Spirit, well, the church is not going to be a Spirit-filled church. We look back to the early church and we read there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, they're gathered in the upper room and it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We go to chapter 4 of that same book and again we read about the entire church. Now think about that, the entire church, every member of the church being filled with the Spirit. We can read about the individuals. We can, you know, like, like Stephen and different ones and the fact that they were filled with the Spirit. That's the one thing above everything that made a difference in their life. Now, as I said this morning, every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God, but not every Christian is filled with the Spirit of God, and that's what leads to our failure. Remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, as he's giving the commission to the church, and, and he tells them that the Spirit is going to come and that he's going to give them great power. And then we read in Acts 1 and verse number 8 where he promised that he would give them power. The power, when the Spirit has come, he will give you power. The power to what? The power to witness. Go into all of the world and be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Now, that word power is the Greek word dunamis. It's a word we get the English word dynamite from. And it simply means strength. It means power. It means ability. Or as A.W. Tozer said, and I'm using for the title of the sermon, the ability to do. The ability to do. Because when Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he will give you power, he is saying, I will give you the Holy Spirit who will give you the ability to do. You see, as a, as, as a Christian, we're all called to live above our own ability. That's why I often say we're called to live a miracle. We're called to live on a plane that is so high that, that, that we can't do it on our own, that we're destined to fail. And so that's why we've got to have some power greater than ourselves if we're going to be successful. Think about the demands of the Bible that are imposed upon us by the righteous judgment of God, and he tells us to forgive one another, love one another, and on all of those things. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, are you kidding me? Forgive your enemies? Are you serious? We're talking about things that in and of ourselves that we can't do, and yet we have these demands that God himself has given us. In addition to that, we have the pressures of life pressing in on us. I mean, just being a, a father, supporting your family, being a mother, taking care of your children, whatever stage or level you are at life, there are pressures inherent of that particular function in life, and they can be quite severe. And, and then you add to all of that the weakness of the flesh, and you just have to conclude, man, we need a miracle. We need a miracle, and we really do, because God has given us an impossible task. With all of those things working against us, what does he do? He turns around and says, go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
And think about the early church. No rapid, rapid transit whatsoever. I mean, you, you don't have a car to run from this village to that village. You, you don't have a telephone. You, you don't have a computer. You don't have a printing press. You don't have any of the means that we have today. And he says, go into all of the world and preach the gospel. That is an absolute impossible task except for the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says here in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8 that, that his power would come upon us. And as a result of that, we would be witnesses unto him where? In the uttermost part of the earth. In other words, he's saying, I've given you the commission and I'm also giving you the ability to do. Now, the problem is, and I promise I'll get to the message later, the promise is this, or the problem is this. The problem is we keep depending on things that won't get the job done. We depend on things that are uh, uh, ineffectual. Uh, for example, we depend sometimes on human, our human ability or our, our talent. And uh, so many times we get to thinking our success depends upon our ability, our, our ability to preach. And, and sometimes, you know, we preachers get into that rut. We get to thinking, well, man, if I would just preach a good enough sermon, man, there's no telling what would happen. Or maybe we depend upon our, our ability to teach or our ability to sing or whatever it is. But God's work does not depend on our natural ability regardless of how well developed those abilities are. We need more than that. That's never enough. Well, then along comes somebody else and says, what we really need if we're going to get ahead of the curve, if we're going to really succeed, we need psychology. Now, uh, we, un we understand that nowadays, you know, we call it, we call it Christian counseling sometimes or whatever, and it's just usually, you know, a, 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 a concealment for just plain old secular psychology. And many preachers have written about this. Finally, they begin to wake up that that's not the solution to our problem, that we're, you know, we're not going to be able to just use psychological means to, to get people from point A to point B. And a lot of times, you know, even preachers resort to psychological manipulation in trying to get people to move uh, during an invitation, for example. Boy, I mean, you can cry a bucket load of crocodile tears and tell a bunch of sad stories, but that's not preaching. It, it's, it's the response to the Word of God and the drawing of the Spirit of God that produces that which is in the will of God. And just getting people to move during the church service is not enough. So we can't depend on psychology. We can't depend on our natural ability. We can't depend upon the business approach, and a lot of churches have adopted that. That's their approach to this thing of doing church, as they call it, doing church. And so they, uh, they get their ideas and their information from Wall Street and Madison Avenue, and, you know, they figure, well, it works for them, it'll work for us. All we've got to do, we're going to start church, we'll go to an area, we'll survey the area, we'll find out what the people like, and then we'll, we'll adapt our service to what will be popular with them, and we can get a big crowd. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I could mention names and call out the names of churches and preachers that have done that very thing. That's the way they started the church. Now, 
I'll, I'll confess, they're probably running four or 5,000 in attendance today. What's so great about that? I mean, during normal times, the, the football teams outdo that. And you don't have anything spiritual about that, I'll guarantee you. So it's going to take more than the business approach for us to be successful as a church. It's going to take more than the political pattern. And, and you can see why I'm having a difficult time getting to the message because there's so much baggage, so much, so much uh, stuff that we've got to try to get out of the way if we're going to get down to what is the real cause for us being able to do what God wants us to do. Over in Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 4, verse 6, says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So that's not just my idea. God is saying it's not by your might, it's not by your power, but it's by my spirit. And so we as people can't do anything acceptable to God apart from the Holy Spirit. He alone gives us the ability to do. And when we read the book of Acts and we read Paul's epistles here, we see how that the Holy Spirit contributed and the Holy Spirit controlled those workers. And so let us never forget that our work is designed by God himself to be accomplished only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the great discovery we need to make is there in Ephesians 3.20 where it talks about God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. So that's where our focus needs to be. But tonight, as you think about this matter of being filled with the Spirit of God, Him giving us the ability to do uh, I want you to look at one verse tonight, and we get to the message, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse number 18, the very last verse of this chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, but we all with open face, that is without a veil, he's been, you know, think about Moses and the veil that was on his face, then it had to be, you know, be, to see the Lord. And he says, but we with an open face, we don't have any veil, nothing between my soul and my Savior, as the song says. We all with open face beholding as in a glass, a mirror, we would say, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. There are four things in this verse that we need to consider tonight, four things that relate to God giving us the ability to do whatever the Word of God commands us to do. First of all, there is an objective vision. We talk about something, the objective uh, we're talking about something that is from without. We talk about something subjective. We're talking about our feelings, something that is within. But notice there is an objective vision that he speaks about. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Now this is speaking about our part in the process. And transformation begins with an objective vision of what? He says of the glory of 
of Christ. So where do we see the glory of Christ? Because we can't see the Lord in person. You know, we don't know exactly what He looks like. And we can't see Him illuminated up somewhere in the heavens. You know, that's a a beautiful thought, but we can't really see Him there. And we can't see Him as He really is painted on the canvas or or in the clay by the sculptor. We, we can't see Him that way. So where is it that we behold the glory of the Lord? It's only in the Word of God that we're able to do that. Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So it's the it's in the Word of God that we see the excellency of His character because it shines out everywhere. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15 where it talks about the seed of the woman and from there on and through the Bible, we see the glory of the Lord shining forth. And He's telling us here that for this transformation in our life to take place, for us to have the ability to do what needs to be done, there has to be this this objective vision. We have to do our part, which is what? Behold the glory of the Lord. And you can't do that if you're neglecting the Word of God. Secondly, there is a subjective transformation that he speaks of. Notice he says, as we behold in the glass the glory of the Lord, what happens? It says, we are changed into the same image. So the objective vision has a subjective purpose. You know, that tells me God's not satisfied with us as we are right now. And if He's not, neither should we be. Sometimes we get all satisfied with ourselves, boy, like we have really arrived. But God has bigger plans than that for us, for every Christian. And we're in the process of heading in that direction. Everybody knows Romans 8.28, right? But Romans 8.29 is a priceless treasure that God has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. Think about that. That's God's plan. And this process, although not finalized till we get in glory, this process ought to be going on in our life every moment of every day of our life as we grow more and more and more into the likeness of Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm trying as hard as I can to be like Christ. And that might be true. Maybe you are. Maybe you're trying your very best, but you need to remember that God's purpose for us is not merely an external imitation. That is that, you know, that we see Jesus did this, and so we try to do that. That's never enough to just say we're going to imitate the Lord in the sense that we'll do Christian things and others will recognize that in us. It takes more than that. It requires an inward transformation because it's never enough to just look like a Christian. We need to be one. And notice that this transformation is by beholding. That word beholding there means a steady, consecrated gazing upon Christ, not just merely a glance. We keep our focus there. And that's the very reason that 
And sometimes I quote uh, Hebrews 12 and verse number 2 so many times I, I think to myself, I bet they're getting tired of hearing me say, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, you know. But we need to hear that over and over and over because, I mean, that is the very root from, what the, from which the fruit of the, the Spirit grows in our life as we keep our focus upon Him. And that, this word behold here implies that. It's talking about a steady gazing upon, not just glancing at Christ on Sunday morning. You know, sometimes we talk about children becoming like their parents. Ah, uh, he's just like his daddy. Well, sadly, that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Sadly, they do tend to become like we are as much as we don't want to admit that. But that's why we need to be so very careful about the example we set before them. But it's also why we need to be careful what we look at, what we focus on in life. Because if we're going to become like Christ, we have to keep our focus upon Him. And in these tough times in which we live, sometimes we can let things crowd Him out of our life. I've been working on a, on a message here lately about distractions. And you know, there's so many things to distract us. I'm not talking about sinful things uh, uh, in and of themselves, but things that, well, we just let get in the way. Things in and of themselves, they're fine, and we let what is good crowd out what is best. And sometimes we can even, even when it comes to the matter of our, of our church life and what have you, we can get so focused on this and that in the church that we don't have our focus upon the Lord. So, you know, as one old preacher a century or so ago said, he said, a glance of faith may save, but it's the gaze of faith that sanctifies. And that is exactly right. So if we want to see this transformation take place in our life, there has to be this objective vision of Christ. We behold Him, keeping our focus upon Him. Now, this objective vision leads to this subjective transformation. But understand, and he tells us here, this is a, a progressive experience. Notice he says, we are, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. And he's simply telling us here, there is no one-step process, you know, one-step uh, thing that we can do in order to suddenly become all that God wants us to be. Sanctification is a continuous process. We're growing. And it's not like salvation, just one step and that's it. Uh, but we, over a period of time, I remember as a boy, and my dad was 5'8", and for, I had an uncle that was about 6 foot, and I so much wanted to be 6 foot tall. And, you know, like a lot of, a lot of little boys, you know, you stand up next to the door, and you, you know what I'm talking about, and you measure how tall you are, and that goes on year after year. And finally I got there. But the point is... I, I, ne I never realized that I was growing. I, 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 you know, you, you're not aware of the process. You just keep eating and exercising and living, and the, the result of that is that you grow. The same thing's true spiritually. 
Sometimes we get discouraged because we look at our life, and especially when we're reading the Word of God, and we, we see from God's Word how we are failing so miserably in some area, and we think that we've not really progressed at all, when in reality we've grown maybe a lot more than we think that we do. But here's the point. He says, he says we're changed. Now, underline that. He didn't say we are changing into the same image. We are changed into that image. We're changed, and here's the progression, from glory to glory. And as often said, we just keep doing that over and over, from glory to glory to glory, until someday we get to glory. But what I want to leave with you tonight, and I'm through, is the fourth thing, and that is the transforming agent. We are changed from glory to glory, but notice what he says next. By the Spirit of the Lord. So our change is not automatic. We don't just grow spiritually because we get older. Somebody you know, might say, well, you know, I've been saved 30 years now. And, and that, that's wonderful, but that is no assurance that you have matured during that time. You might still be, you know, in the infant stage, a spiritual babe. And so, you know, it's not something that's automatic. And some people say, well, uh, you just have to let go and let God. Well, you know, the Bible says, the Bible says there's some things we have to put off and some things we have to put on. In other words, we have to play a part in this. We can't do it ourselves. Regardless of how hard we try, we're going to fail. But God's not going to do it without us making an effort. And so we are working as it were, and yet the Spirit of God is working. But He is the agent of change. He's the one that brings about this change, this transformation in our life. Probably every person here... If you'll stop and think, you can think of something that, uh, that, that really needs to be changed in your life. It's really not where it ought to be. If you can't think of it, ask your husband or wife, and they can tell you. Because they'll recognize it in you sometimes a whole lot sooner than you do. But it ought to be obvious to all of us. There are changes that need to be made, and we've got to realize as much as we try, we are never going to be able to accomplish that in and of ourselves. So it's the working of the Holy Spirit. And He works as we are filled with the Spirit. Now, a lot of people have misunderstood that. They think, you know, it's something like we get more of the Spirit. I've heard some preachers use that terminology. You, you need more of the Spirit. The Spirit is a person. You either have Him or you don't. You don't get an arm today and a leg tomorrow. And the whole charismatic movement is based on this, this false idea that after we're saved, then we've got to get the Spirit. And that's not true at all. You have the Holy Spirit. When it talks about being filled with the Spirit, it's like over in the book of Acts where it talked about the city being filled with confusion. It means brought under the influence of something. So if I'm filled with the Spirit, that means that I am surrendered, yielded to the Spirit, and I'm living my life life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what brings forth this transformation that we so desperately need. Now, 
in his work, the Holy Spirit exercises both a negative and a positive work in us. First of all, he reveals to us the things in our life that are not Christ-like. That's why no Christian can sin successfully. Because when we, when we sin against God, the Holy Spirit of God is going, to, is going to convict us of our sin. You can't be comfortable as a Christian living in sin. And it's the Holy Spirit that, that enlightens our mind and causes us to be aware of the sin that is in our life. And He always does His job, by the way. He doesn't fail. We're the ones that fail. So thank God for that, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to reveal the things that are unlike Christ. But the second thing he does is to reveal to us the graces and the blessings which should and could be ours. In other words, he enables us to to see and to understand what could be ours, what should be ours, and he enables us to appropriate those things unto ourselves and that's why in Galatians 5 in verse number 22 where Paul he's just spoken about he's just spoken about the works of the flesh in other words that's what we produce but then he turns right around and he speaks about the fruit of the spirit the product of the spirit and he gives a list of nine different graces it starts with love and it ends uh, it, it ends with us being able to, uh, to control ourselves, and he uses the word temperance. And so here he says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. So when the Spirit of God is working in my life, he's showing me these possibilities. He's convicting me of the things that are unchristlike. And you look at all nine of those graces that are mentioned there, and all nine of them paint a perfect picture, as it were, of Jesus himself when you put all of them together that's exactly what you have and so our prayer and I'm through listen our prayer ought to be the last stanza of what we sing a lot of times for invitation have thine own way Lord have thine own way hold o'er my being absolute sway fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me that's the message we want to send to others mom dad that's the message you need to send to your children that's the message you young people need to send to your classmates that's the message that you need to send to your co-workers when when you go back to work that they'll see christ only and always living in and through you and we can't make that happen only the holy spirit can do that Think about it. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the early church. Just imagine if it could be honestly, truthfully said of Lakeway Baptist Church, every member is a Spirit-filled Christian. Can you imagine what God could do right here? Our mind can't even comprehend of the possibilities of what God could do and what God would do if that was the case. 
And, I, you know, I know we all have this tendency to, to think about the shortcomings of somebody else within, uh, within the church. And what we need to focus on is our own shortcomings. And it ought to be the great desire of our heart. Oh, God, fill me with your spirit. Let me live my life under his control. And when that happens, it'll manifest those nine different graces called the fruit of the spirit. And I'll tell you what, whenever those nine things are manifest in your life, others cannot but help see Jesus in you. And that's the message we need to send to the world. We need to show them the difference that he can make. And mark it down that people watching you, they won't tell you that, but they're watching you. You claim to be a Christian, and they're watching to see how you respond to a crisis. They're watching to see how you respond to temptation. They're watching to see how you respond to the difficulties of life. And in every sense of the word, they ought to be able to see Jesus living in and through us. I, I want you to pray for me that that's the way it'll be in my life. I want to be a spirit-filled Christian. Look, and I, I can't be a spirit-filled Christian and say, well, boy, I asked God to fill me and he did. And that's all I ever need. No, no. It's just like we talk about revival. We need revival every day of our life. And every day of our life, it requires us surrendering, yielding ourselves afresh and anew unto the Lord. It's a daily thing for each and every one of us. Aren't you glad that with all of the difficulties we face, that God promised, I have given you the power to do. And he didn't shortchange any of his children. We've all got more than enough of what we need to do what we should. Let's stand. Father, forgive me of the times that, that I've not reflected the image of Christ to others. Forgive me of the times that, Lord, that I've become complacent and satisfied with my life as, as it is rather than striving to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Forgive me of the times that I've depended upon me rather than the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I just pray tonight that each and every one of us might, might surrender, that we might yield ourselves without any reservation, without any hesitation, without any question, that we might just take our hands off of our life and like, a, like an old lump of clay, put our hands in the hands of the great potter that you'll take and mold us and make us and shape us into what you would have us to be, a vessel that is fit for the master's use. Fill us with your spirit and use us for your glory and help us, Lord, to do our very best to, to be a witness to you in all of the world that others might hear the gospel. We beg it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to stand.